At the time I'm recording these words, it's been more than 266 days since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. In the past few months, the war's momentum has swung dramatically in Kiev's favor amid a Ukrainian counteroffensive that has Russian troops retreating from areas that Moscow formally annexed only recently. Himars, Atakums, a dispute over a missile that landed in Poland and killed two bystanders. A so-called partial mobilization in Russia that has flooded the Kremlin's invasion forces with poorly motivated draftees as the winter weather looms. What are these things? How significant are these developments? And what could happen next? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And today's episode is a kind of idiot's guide to the current state of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'll be your idiot today, like usual. And our guide is none other than military analyst Rob Lee, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, FPRI, who's been meticulously gathering operational data about the war since before Russian troops even started pouring over the Ukrainian border. You can find Rob's work at FPRI's website and outlets like War on the Rocks, and especially on Twitter, if it still exists by the time you're listening, where he has well more than half a million followers. Before jumping into today's interview, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website, to make a one-time or recurring donation, and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. So on today's show, I asked Rob to explain the weapons that have powered Ukraine's counteroffensive, what Russia's recent retreat from Kherson could mean for the invasion's future, and how airstrikes against critical civilian infrastructure across Ukraine affect its national defense capabilities. That and more in the interview. Now here it is. What is so special about high-mobility artillery rocket systems, these, these HIMARS or HIMARS. Is it HIMARS or HIMAR? HIMARS. HIMARS. So what's, why, is the, why are they so special? The way they're described in the media is like, this is manna from heaven for Ukraine. It's basically flipped the war for them. My goodness, they're unstoppable now. Like, what is, what's the thing with these weapons? HIMARS are a multiple launch rocket system, but they have guided munitions. And like a lot of the U.S. producers, it's very accurate, right? And so... I don't know. I forget the the circular problem is, but it's it's you know if if you fire one of these things, it's likely going to hit a target. I believe it's GPS guided, and so what's you know we talk about weapon systems, different wars, certain weapon systems will be more useful than others than and in some wars than others depending on conditions. Hmm. And so we talk about high Mars. High Mars are really effective for a couple of reasons. One, Ukraine is using them well, right? So that comes to them first. Two, the Russian military is, is particularly vulnerable to this because they have a very centralized logistic system, command and control. That means that they have to have large fixed positions closer to the to the, the front lines. And anything within, you know, I think Gimbler's range is like 75, 80, 80 or so kilometers. If Ukraine knows where its target is, right, they have the GPS coordinate for it, they can destroy it with the Gimbler's, right? They can hit it, you know, very, very reliably. So part of this comes down to 
the way the Russian military operates, they are particularly vulnerable to this. And particularly artillery, right? We know they, they used a, a large amount of artillery, particularly in the Battle of Donbass. And so they have a very centralized kind of logistics system to move that artillery, or a lot of this kind of, it's kind of like industrial scale warfare. How many rounds can you move to artillery batteries every day so they can get replenished, so on. And so because of that, Russia had a lot of arms depots. When HIMARS arrived at the end of June, the first targets they went after was you know, high-level command and control or these kind of ammo depots. Uh, and the ammo depots, you know, they, they, Ukrainians know where they were. And then once they got HIMARS, now they can hit these targets because they have a longer range kind of system that's very, very accurate. So that's part of it. Part of it too is that um, Ukraine has access to U.S. intelligence, right? And so it's not just the Ukrainian military fighting with their own intelligence capabilities. It's the U.S. intelligence community locating targets for them. So there are a number of division-level headquarters of the Russian military that are destroyed by HIMARS strikes. It wasn't stated explicitly, but it's certainly possible that the U.S. intelligence was picking up on, you know, some of the kind of the SIGIN or other things, picking up on locations for these command and control nodes, giving that to Ukraine, and Ukraine was targeting them with HIMARS. It was reported back in March or April that the reason there were so many Russian journalists getting killed was because the U.S. was providing intelligent data on where Russian command posts were. This is before HIMARS arrives. Once HIMARS arrives, right, they have an even more accurate system that can hit at deeper ranges. So that's, that's part of it, too. And also, you know, keep in mind, HIMARS arrives, what, four months into the war. And so by that point, the Russian Air Force failed to achieve air superiority. Ukraine's air defenses, right, they're critical to the HIMARS success because basically Russia has a very limited ability to hit targets beyond the front lines, you know, accurately. Because UAVs get shot down, so they can't locate targets very well. And, you know, the Russian aircraft can't operate, you know, beyond the front lines very close because they get shot down too. And so they have a very limited ability to interdict things. That means HIMARS, which are very fast, very mobile, and very accurate, can move quickly, you know, launch some extremely accurate munitions, and then it can immediately move, displace, and move somewhere else. That makes it extremely difficult to target unless you have some kind of persistent aviation coverage there, which Russia can't achieve. So it's, it's basically, it's a variety of things coming together that make HIMARS effective. HIMARS are a good system as, as they are, but it's always other factors that made, that made them have such a kind of larger role than other kind of systems in those conflicts. Is this their greatest success story or have they been used to similar success in some in other conflicts? So US will use HIMARS in Afghanistan. I think they use it in Iraq, I assume as well. And then the older variants, the M270, it's again, well, it's, it's a tracked version of the HIMARS, but it's also a kind of multiple electronic system, which which Ukraine has some of those now. Those have been in service for a long time. Like, you know, they were active in Desert Storm as well. I don't know enough of the history to say overall, but Clearly in Ukraine, right, when they arrived, they had an immediate effect. And, you know, when they arrived in June, I think the first video we saw was June 24th. And then basically Russia's offensive of the Donbass, it very much relied heavily on having a huge quantitative advantage in artillery fire. So every day, right, they, they had maybe some, some, some advantages in manpower in the Battle of Donbass in local areas, but most of the things they didn't have that much advantage in. It was really artillery they were firing so many more rounds a day than what Ukraine could muster that that, that kind of had that as, as they achieved the success they did then. And so when HIMARS arrives, it basically significantly reduced that ability, reduced the, the number of rounds Russia could fire each day. And then we've seen more recently, after they went through the really kind of important targets, you know, the last couple months, we've been seeing HIMARS take part in counter-battery fire. So that they're targeting Russian artillery systems, like, you know, higher level systems. As opposed um, to the command and the command and control and the ammo. Yeah, because, yeah. because I mean, basically they, they have a, a target list, right? So they're the top priority targets. Most of those things they've destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. Russia's learned either any, any targets within Gilmore's range mm -hmm. um, near the front has either been destroyed 
or, or is the mood beyond that range. You said, like, you said Gimler. What is Gimler? Gimler is, is the munition of the Highmars fire. Okay. So, so it'd be, in Highmars, Gimler's range, it's interchangeably, basically. And so, anyway, it's it, it been very effective, but effective for a variety of reasons. And another thing more recently is that Ukraine now, much of the artillery is NATO supplied. So it's 155 millimeter howitzers. Some of it is you know, US M777s, which are towed howitzers. France, Germany, a number of other countries provide different versions, Poland as well. And more recently, the U.S. has been providing Excalibur rounds. So Excalibur are precision-guided munitions. So in, unlike just normal dome artillery, where it just takes you a couple rounds firing a target to adjust it to, to, until you actually hit the target itself, Excalibur, if you have the rift coordinate for a target, it will hit it right away. And so that's also been a significant development because Ukraine can fire fewer rounds to destroy targets, and yeah, you know, that's quite useful and important. And it's like one of these rounds cost as much as like a cruise missile are these like million dollar rounds or is it like not is it not that expensive i forget the exact cost i think it's i think it's worth almost hundreds of thousand dollars not millions i see but they are precision guided so they're, they're... So this can be either gps guided so you give it a, a grid coordinate it strikes that coordinate or it could be something where you use a laser to aim it right so the uav or aircraft point to laser at a target and then the munition hits whatever that you know wherever that laser is pointing right so different, different types of kind of guidance I'm not the, the best expert on this stuff, so you know, I'm not the right guy to talk to. But basically, you know, what it means is in a lot of these artillery duels, um, especially in Kherson over the summer, you'd see you know, the Ukrainians would, they would locate a Russian vehicle or something. They see it driving and they start firing artillery at it. But if it's, if it's driving, right, it's very hard with unguided artillery to hit a target that's moving like on the first round, unless you fire a large, large amount of rounds and you use kind of like cluster type munitions. And so there are a number of engagements over the summer where Ukraine was firing targets and they just weren't hitting, right? And expending, you know, numbers of enemies to do so. Whereas now, if you have Excalibur rounds, once the target stops, right, if you know the grid or you, or you can laser target, you know, it's going to be destroyed, you know, very, very likely chance. So it, it removes some, some of the logistics problems for Ukraine because they can achieve first round effects. And a lot of these, you know, previous fights for artillery duels, they might not hit a target and, you know, spend know, dozens of rounds you know, not having success. So, I mean, it's a huge advantage. So you said that the Russian military's sort of posture in the invasion of Ukraine made it uniquely or just especially vulnerable to these HIMARS weapons, these Gil... Gil what is it? Gil Gilmy? No, not Gimli. That's Lord of the Rings. Gimlar. Gimlar. What? L-O-R-S, I think. Okay. So these, the, these particular weapons, they were very vulnerable to those. Are there other... American or NATO weapons out there that would presumably also really tip the scales extra, I guess. Like I know I've seen, I've seen um, the Ukrainian military and government would love to have what if I'm the ATACMs, Army Tactical Missile Systems, or even F-16 fighter jets. Yeah, attackums. So so attackums can also be launched by high Mars. The benefit basically is is longer range and it's a bigger warhead. Right. So depending on what target you want to destroy, if you want to destroy a bridge. So Ukrainians use Gimlars on the bridges across the Dnieper all over the summer. And ultimately, you know, they, they basically disabled them, but they required, you know, a number of strikes, basically, to do so because they could punch and cast small holes and bridges are quite well built. Attackums would be more effective than that because if they were warhead, and again, it's the range. So basically, all of those important targets that Russia had is moves beyond Gimlars range, right, since, since Ukraine got, got HIMARS, well, all that stuff, you know, attackums can hit anything can basically any part of Ukrainian territory is occupied by Russia right now, right? So anything is open. That includes Crimea, pretty much everything. Crimea includes all of Donbass elsewhere. And so basically, I mean, 
it'd be very tough for Russia because they would not have any safe areas, right? Or, or comparatively safe areas to, to use for logistics, for command and control, so on. So, I mean, attackums would have a big role. You know, part of the issue is that when the Biden administration provided HIMARS beginning, they explicitly said we are not providing attackums because of escalatory risk, I think. I forget exact phrasing, but they made it clear they're not providing attackums because attackums, you know, could be more likely to be used hitting targets in Russian territory, not Russian occupied territory, but actual Russian territory. And then basically they were kind of saying, you know, we're not trying to escalate this conflict. And so that was, I think that was the kind of balance they drew. And so now it becomes the issue of if the U.S. provides attackums, what, you know, what, what signal does that send to Russia? And, and again, you know, attackums would be effective, but I think because the Biden administration makes such a big deal that they, they were concerned about escalation risk in the beginning, if they provide them now and nothing's changed, then it becomes a question of, okay, what, what signal do you send to, to Putin? And of course, the Biden administration is, is concerned about ultimately escalation risk with Putin because, you know, it, uh, it seems Bill Barnes is meeting with Sergei Rishkin about not using nuclear weapons and things of that nature. So attackums would be effective. Certainly, you talk about fighter aircrafts because fighter aircrafts, the U.S. provided anti-radiation missiles to uh, what Ukraine. Is the, what is an anti-radiation missile? I it, saw it that and I thought... It goes out to radar. Okay. <laughs> you fire it at a, like a, at, a, at a place that's been, that has a radiation and it goes away. It sounds like an amazing missile. Yeah. No, so it's, um, when radar turned on, they emit a certain you know signal and basically these missiles can, can hone in on that as long as that signal is being emitted. That's why a lot of times you, you don't keep radar on all times because you don't want the, the beacon to locate. So those were immediately effective. They were somehow the, the U.S. the Ukrainians they, they jerry rigged it so MiG 29s could use them, which was not previously possible. Certainly, if you provide F-16s, so, you know a more modern fighter, it can come with a whole suite of capabilities that they don't have right now, and probably long-range munitions. But again, it comes back to the U.S. still saying we are concerned about escalation risks. We don't want to provide Ukraine with weapons that could strike deeper into Russian territory. That comes back to that you know whether or not they'll provide them or not. So for the most part, you know Ukraine is. Ukraine's have a success. They're having success with what they have. A lot of the things that would be useful, so air defenses, right? I've been talking about that a lot just because that's how you protect Ukrainian cities and infrastructure. And part of this comes back to just, you know, Ukraine's economy, right? Can Ukraine's economy continue to operate? It seems Russia's trying to make that not the case, right? It's a kind of asymmetric response to an inability to kind of respond to Ukraine's advantage on the battlefield. So air defense are obviously a big one. They're not going to provide long-range systems. There's things like tanks, Infantry fighting vehicles, like more modern systems. So when Ukraine is attacking, they have better troop protection or better kind of equipment to use. So things of that nature. I'm not sure what the, the entire Ukrainian shopping list is, but again, Ukrainians know what they need and they're asking for it. And so it's, you know, basically they've they, they proven in Kharkiv and elsewhere, they know how to do offensive operations. They can do this successfully, but they're asking for something. It's because they know that's the kind of demand or, or need they, the, their military has, and they know this better than I do. In terms of those uh, asymmetric strikes on essentially Ukraine's critical infrastructure, it's civilian critical infrastructure, it's economy, basically, as you said, do you see any impact on on Ukraine's ability to resist the invasion? Or I mean, because that's often described in the, in the media, it seems as, as, oh, they can shut off the lights, but they can't break Ukrainians' will. And it's like, okay, I'm, sur- I'm sure that is the case, but also, I mean without electricity, can they have an economy? Can they, I mean, they have, to, they have to feed themselves and so on. Like, do you see direct impacts yet of, of these strikes against power plants and water treatment facilities and so on? Yes. I mean, short answer, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an economics expert, so I'm not sure how well, you know, economically Ukraine can sustain the conflict. That's obviously an important consideration. I'll say, you know, basically it doesn't have a, that much of direct military effects, 
right? And so again, we're seeing they've been doing these this kind of campaign since early October when when Sorovikin was was appointed. You know, they have enough missiles to do basically big kind of launches once every couple of weeks, right? And that's what we've been seeing. Where they had a, the big strike early on when Sorovikin was appointed, and then like a week or two later, you'll see you know the same thing, like 50, 60 missiles launch. But on a daily basis, it's not that hot. And so Ukraine now has some new air defense systems. So some of the NATO stuff's arrived. I think that, you know, yesterday, I think Secretary Austin said one of the systems in Kiev has a 100% intercept record so far. I don't know, right? And Ukraine makes claims about like shooting down like 80% of the missiles every day. I honestly have no idea that data is right. That, is that the consensus now on the quality of missile defense? Because I mean, I remember reading about it in the 90s and the, what I understood the consensus to be was this does, stuff doesn't work that well, but now it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know, right? And so the, so the data stuff is, is hard to tell. Obviously, Ukraine shoots down some things. Cruise missiles and ballistic missiles are different. So cruise missiles fly at low altitude and they're relatively slow. So it gets what you see videos of them all the time where people will post videos. That means, right, air defense systems can't shoot down, right? If it, if it flies over you and it's not a stealthy system, you know, it's potentially you can shoot those down with short-range air defense systems. Ballistic missiles are more difficult because they fly at a ballistic trajectory and they come down very fast. And so that's why mostly kind of the air defense systems that we build, like I think Patriot is mostly designed for ballistic missiles. I think that was true for, for you know, a lot, a lot of the Russian systems too, the air defense systems. So one of the concerns is that, right, there's been talk about Iran providing service-to-service missiles to Russia. Obviously, they've been using these UAVs, like these Shahid-136, which have been, you know, relatively effective, although, you know, you can shoot those down because they're slow-moving, they're very loud, they're pretty big, so, you know, you can hit those. If Iran provides ballistic missiles, that will be a different, you know, kind of threat to in Russia's kind of air campaign. So that would be an issue. But yeah, I mean, I expect these kind of street bombing campaigns, they can make the war more costly. They can make it more terrible. They typically don't change the outcome that much, I think, especially in this case, if it's trying to go after Ukraine's economy. You know, the Ukrainian military right now is, is supported by NATO. As long as it continues to receive NATO support, NATO ammunition, so on, the Ukrainian military is going to keep you know, they're not going to lose, right, at, at a minimum of that. They'll probably keep, you know, gaining more more ground. You know, they have, they have a lot of advantages. How the civilian stuff factors in, I don't know. But, you know, as, as I said, it doesn't seem Ukrainians have any desire to give up on this war. I think when when they, you know, had their power knocked out, it just makes them kind of angry, angry at Russia. And they kind of want to win the war even faster. And so that seems to be a consensus that I see is that Ukrainians want to win this war. They, they you know, they've seen Kharkiv, Kherson, they see the scenes where, you know, they liberate villages. All these villagers are, 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 are happy to see Ukrainian troops come in. We hear about all the kind of stuff that was committed by Russian troops in those areas. It's a very strong motivation for Ukraine to not you know, leave any of these territories in Russian hands, given what we see every time when they liberate a village. Right, right. Do you see the Ukrainian counteroffensive hitting a wall anywhere short of the Russian border? I mean, you mentioned before that the United States has been reluctant to supply these attackums, which could reach Crimea, but a Crimea is obviously occupied territory as well, but it has a kind of special status because the West basically put up with it or looked the other way for, you know, eight years or whatever it was. And so, and Russia seems to value it more than they do, say, Kherson, certainly. So do you see the Ukrainian counteroffensive stopping at some point short of total victory? And what would, how would that play out? The short answer is I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think we're all kind of, making predictions on a level of uncertainty. And, you know, it's important to kind of factor that in. So part of this comes down to the amount of support that Ukraine gets, right? So, you know, some people, there were comments yesterday saying there's very unlikely that Ukraine will take back all of Crimea. Well, you know, that, maybe that assumes the current level of support. If Ukraine started getting attackums or other kind of systems, 
they would have a better chance of taking back all of Crimea, right? And then if they lose some of this kind of support, then it would be less likely to take back more terrain. They get the, the you know the kind of continued support that they're getting received right now. You know, I, they have every reason to think they'll take back more territory. When you look at the Russian military, one thing that's hard to kind of tell is it's increasingly involuntary force, right? So, you know, began on February 24th with almost all volunteers, right? The volunteer military, Roskvardia, the professional units from the LDNR proxies, right? Which are essentially part of the Russian military. And then as the war has gone on, those units took heavy casualties. And so it became, okay, we, they mobilized the men in the occupied areas of, of the LDNR areas. And they started pointing them back in like March or April, like early on. And then Wagner started taking it apart, right? They started accepting volunteers, all these short, short-term volunteers to sign up three-month, six-month contracts, right? Get no training, get deployed. And then basically, you know, by, by, by August or September, when Ukraine started to have these, you know, successes, the Russian military wasn't that professional. It was, you know, even professional military units, they had these kind of short-term volunteers or other kind of guys who were fighting for them. Wagner's not using, you know, prisoners who've done any sorts of things. And so, and not to mention now, you know, they're mobilizing Russian citizens. And so basically the force fighting for Russia now is increasing involuntary one because it's either guys who have mobilized short-term contracts who are not allowed to, to basically in their contracts, which like stop loss, or you know, all these refuseniks, guys in like to me, March or April who said, you know what, I'm not fighting anymore, which was a not insignificant percentage from like some of the anecdotes I've seen. Those guys now have criminal penalties. They don't fight. Right. So all these kind of things have meant that, okay, now you have a lot of, you know, you have larger manpower, but it's not the most willing manpower. And then when you get in the winter, when the weather is poor, the gap between units that have good morale and discipline and units that don't have that becomes even you know, starker. Right. And so when you look at kind of going in the winter, the big weakness for the Russian military now is manpower. It's been manpower basically the entire war, different things going on, but basically the manpower. On the Ukrainian side, you, you have a, you know, at this point, equally or better, better trained military, right? So whatever advantages Russia had on February 24th, well, now you have a lot of guys who had minimal training who are fighting for them. Ukraine has better morale, better leadership. They've always got advantages militarily and they have better precision fires, right? For, with HIMARS and other kind of NATO artillery. And they've experienced doing this stuff, right? And of course, every time they, they, they achieve success, they get more momentum, right? It's a, it's a morale boost. It's the opposite effect for Russian troops where it's, you know, if you're a mobilized guy who's sitting in a trench in, in Kherson, in January, like what what are, what are you what are you doing there? Right? Is is Harrison that you know culturally politically important to you as a Russian? Like I don't know, I, I, it doesn't seem that it really is that important. And of course, what, what is Russia's goal at this point? Just to not lose more? It's like, well, no, no. I think if you're a mobilized guy, you're not well equipped, you're not well trained, you get thrown right into the fight. You don't know what the goals are. It's cold out, right? Any all sorts of problems here. And so when we come back to it, part of the discussion is if Russia keeps holding. And the military does not collapse, right? It will take time for Ukraine to take more territory. I think the war will go still into 2023, right? Most likely go to the summer at least. There is certainly a possibility that the Russian military at different levels kind of collapses, right? Not, not named Russian military, it's the, the, the force fighting for Russia. I don't know when that would be, or I don't know what the breaking point is. But it is certainly something that's possible given that the force is, is increasingly unmotivated and, and just the leadership's in poor and it's just not clear what they're fighting for. And again, do you want to die in some area you don't really care about, it's not really significant for you, and a war that you're already losing, where the leadership is terrible, and you're cold, and you don't have good equipment. It's all these kind of things, right? So anyway, when we talk about like long-term, I, I don't know what the end of the conflict will look like. I suspect, I'm confident, Ukraine will take back more territory. And they've every reason to believe they'll do that. And so there's no reason for Ukraine to negotiate for the time being, because however the war ends, the more terrain they've taken back, 
is better for them, obviously, right? Or, or at least they're in a stronger bargaining position if they take back more train too. So again, I, I think at a minimum, Ukraine is looking to give back to February 24th borders, right? Or, or approximation of that. As you said, Crimea is probably this kind of outlier question where it is part of Ukraine. Russia certainly views it differently. They view these other areas, right? I mean, you know, the, the irony with the whole Kherson thing was Russia said, this is legally our territory. We claim it all. And like, and, you know, Peskov was saying, oh, the nuclear umbrella applies to, you know, all this territory. And they just abandoned it, right? And it's like, I mean, it's just farcical. But clearly, Crimea, Russia will probably look at it differently because it is such a, I'd say, you know, integral part of Putin's legacy, right? Foreign policy, legacy, everything else. Crimea is so central to that. And if you were to lose it, the question would be basically, you know, when you look at Putin's 22 years so in power, well, you know, it's, it's kind of unmistakably a failure when you look at those, those kind of things on the foreign policy side, not to mention everything else that's already happened. So yeah, anyway, I, I don't know how the end will go with that. I, I certainly think that escalation risks grow if Ukraine threatens Crimea. I also think, you know, the, the, the side benefit that if Ukraine makes a continued push towards Crimea, Russia may pull forces from elsewhere to defend Crimea because it's more important. Right then, stays operations or somewhere else. So anyway, I, I don't have a you know very strong predictions other than Ukraine is going to take back more territory. I think it's very likely. It's certainly possible that you know, the Russian military faces a significant kind of collapse at some point. I'm not predicting that necessarily, but I think it's possible. So you see signs. You see signs of potential collapse, even though my impression of the retreat from Kherson was that they looked to be actually exercising better discipline. They they planned it and they did it. They kind of, it was a more it was a less chaotic withdrawal than we've seen from some of the other areas in the path of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And so that seemed to me like, okay, the Russian military is actually adjusting to this, to, to sort of being on its back feet. And, um, and that'll be, that's like, in, that in, indicates that they're going to, they're doing better now, even if they're re- retreating. So, so I guess I, I focus a couple of days. One is you're right. I think the withdrawal was well done. There are always kind of, you know, suggestions that they lost a lot of equipment or a lot of you know, per- personnel were getting, getting surrounded. Not much indication of that. Most of the equipment we've seen that destroyed was probably destroyed weeks ago, not necessarily, you know, in the aftermath of this. So the withdrawal does look like it was, it was done better. Putting Surovik in charge, having, I think he's the first real overall commander of the war, that is better for, for Russia as well. And the issue just comes back to just, you know, they have manpower problems. But one thing to keep in mind, Ersan, it was mostly VDV, it was elite units doing the withdrawal, right? And so you have more competent units, more professional units doing this. Whereas other parts of the front, you have a larger number of mobilized units or other kind of not very well trained, not very motivated forces. So the, the standards we saw in Kherson, and absolutely Kherson was a tougher fight than Kharkiv because, again, the Russian had good forces there and they fought relatively effectively at their level. Um, that's why it took Ukraine time to, to, to kind of claw it back and take it back. But yeah, when you look at other parts of the front, if Ukraine is not fighting against those kind of forces, they'll probably have more success. And it's not the VDV I think is going to collapse. It's what if mobilized units or these other kind of volunteer units decide we don't want to fight? We're not happy about the war. You know, do you, do you have enough BDV units to plug those holes? I don't think they do. So again, I, I don't think it collapses the most likely scenario. I think it's a possible one. But ultimately, you know, there are always anecdotes we hear of not necessarily mutinies, but of units who don't want to fight, of units who are complaining to commanders, of always kind of, of dissension and problems. And, and it basically, I think it's very hard to kind of say, okay, here's where the breaking point would be. Here's what we kind of see. What we do see is there are significant morale issues, significant leadership issues, and that can lead to greater cascading effects across the Russian force. But, you know, when, when or how that would happen, I don't know. And, you know, I, I try not to make kind of predictions that are that specific because it's, it's mostly got to guess I also asked Rob about the recent tragedy in Poland that killed two bystanders. 
Initial reports claimed that the deaths were the result of a Russian airstrike, but it now appears that the tragedy was caused by accidental Ukrainian air defense fire. Rob explained what we know so far about the missile attack. I'd say the initial photos looked like a S-300 series missile. Both Russia and Ukraine use S-300s, but Ukraine uses older versions. So S-300PT, S-300PS. Russia has some S-300PS systems still in service, like in Tajikistan or also in the Arctic. But they typically have more modern systems. And the more modern systems have newer missiles, which are, 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 which are, are different and you can kind of identify them differently. So the, the missile that it appears it was, was an older S-300 missile. The location suggests, right, is more likely this is a Ukrainian air defense missile. Ukrainian officials have been saying for a long time that Russia has been using S-300s in a ground attack role because basically every Russian missile, even anti-ship missiles, they're all kind of, they always want to have a ground attack option, right? So they want them to be as adaptable as possible. So they allegedly have been using S-300 missiles to hit targets elsewhere in Ukraine. Mostly, I think that's been in the south or east. I don't think I've seen any reports before they were launched from Belarus, which would have to be the case in this case. Of course, the other question is, with Russia, they, they, they still have enough cruise missiles. If they're hitting a target in western Ukraine near the border, would you choose to use one of your more accurate missiles or your you know, less accurate missiles? I would say more accurate. It does seem as though, you know, look, it's been very clear since maybe April or so, you know, the critical, the critical things supporting for Ukraine was NATO arms. NATO arms is what allowed Ukraine to sustain this war and to you know, basically have success. The Russians understood that, and they still decided we're not going to hit NATO countries because we are still concerned about invoking Article 5. We don't want to get into a fight with NATO. So it seems, again, based on now statements from, like, from Poland, from the U.S., from elsewhere, most likely this was a Ukrainian air defense missile. One thing to keep in mind is that you know, missiles, they don't have a, they're not 100% like perfect, right? We lost missiles, even with U.S. missiles, a certain number of them were just going to go errant for some reason, right? It happens in any kind of missile. There are examples of Russian air defense missiles that kind of turn around. They hit targets, you know, that, that landed uh, short. No surprise that happened with F-300 missiles. And again, you know, look, it's Russia's launching missiles at Ukraine territory. They have every right to try and defend themselves. Ukraine has been asking for new air defense systems. This is an older air defense system. So it's, you know, we, we talk about culpability. I don't blame Ukraine for this you know, incident. It's a tragic thing that happens because of wars, right? Tragedies happen in war, but you don't predict them because you get put in really terrible situations. So I think it's, it's best to, to wait and let, you know, see if there's more information that comes out about it. Sure. Okay. One of the, the memes or one of the things I see constantly on social media, and I guess even from pundits, is that Russia is, is like down to its last bullet or its last rocket. And that's why they're going to Iran, but even that's tenuous. And really, the, the war could very well end because they run out of things to fire at Ukraine. Is that, an, how, how much of an exaggeration is that? Uh, it is exaggeration. So basically, Russia will never run out of missiles because they can burn some. E- even with, you know, and some of the missiles have been kind of taken apart, it shows that a lot of the, the chips on things are very rudimentary. Like it's not very high tech stuff. And so some of the stuff they can still produce, you know, obviously sanctions have any effect, but they can still produce some of the stuff. So, they're never going to run on missiles completely. The question is always, do they have enough missiles to hit you know, a certain number of targets every day? And they don't. Right? And the number of missile strikes decreased over the summer. It became much lower. And then basically in the fall, we see, we see these days where we see you know, 70, 80 missiles get launched. And then we'll see you know, very few over the next like, week or two. Right? And so again, it comes back to they can still produce summer missiles every day. Obviously, the Iranian drones help out because a new kind of, you know, basically use them kind of like missiles. And, you know, they'll continue to you know, produce a certain number going forward. But certainly the, the, the number they had in the beginning of the war 
they eat through. And so they can, you know, they have to be more conservative about how many they use at a time. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from military analyst Rob Lee, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, about the current state of the war in Ukraine. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll discuss the political power and public role of oligarch, warlord, and troll king Yevgeny Prigozhin. See you then.